Hi, I'm Malcolm Duncan. Thanks for joining me for the podcast series Risk Takers, The Life God Intends for You, based on a book by the same name that I wrote in 2013. My prayer is that God will use this podcast series to encourage you, to inspire you, to challenge you, to stretch you, but most of all, to lead you into the life that he has for you. For more information on Risk Takers or other resources, please take a look at my website, malcolmduncan.co.uk, or you can contact me via Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter. Thanks for joining me for the second episode of the Risk Takers podcast, entitled Risking Our Name. I want to start with a prayer, a declaration. It's called Spiritual Myopia. We need healing, Lord. Our spiritual myopia is eroding our vision of a bigger plan. So the inevitable collision of our church utopia with the limited scope it has is making us more comfortable than we should be. Our ground is getting smaller, so we get a bigger crowd, but on a smaller space. We make the music loud enough to drown out the cries of the broken and the poor, but it's never loud enough to drown your cries. Bigger congregations won't answer segregation, Locking ourselves in prayer won't show that we care. Enjoying when we meet won't change the street. Becoming more respectable won't change the spectacle of communities that need hope infused, sin refused, tension diffused, Satan confused and the saints enthused. We need healing, Lord. New eyes to see, new ears to hear that you are here. Faith to believe that you win. Courage to push the envelope until you envelop people, streets, communities, towns, nations, continents and turn the world the right way up. We don't need bigger buildings. We need bigger hearts. We don't need to increase our capacity for seats. We need to increase our capacity to love. We don't need more blessing. We need to be blessing more. We don't need more grace. We need to be more gracious. We don't need more of you. You need more of us. There isn't an answer around the corner. We are the answers hiding in a corner. You don't need to fit into our plans. We need to fit into yours. And your plan has changed from the inside out. Hope from the fetus of faith to the adulthood of the kingdom. Courage that pushes us out. Birthing pangs that scream a declaration through the heavenlies. God is here. You won in the Jerusalem dirt when Christ was planted like a seed in the ground beside Golgotha's mound. And three days later, the seed pushed through the earth. The plant has been growing ever since and we are now its seed, called to germinate, to propagate and to profligate the gospel. God wins. What a life, what a hope. Imagine what it might mean for us to risk everything for the gospel, to risk everything for the kingdom of God. What would a risk taker's life look like? In the next three episodes of my podcast, I want to explore the characteristics, the personality traits of a risk taker or three attitudes in their life, if you like, that can help them. This one is about risking our name. The next one is about risking our reputation and the one after that will be about choosing our legacy. But I don't think we have to scrabble around in the dark looking for an example of a risk taker. The Bible gives us one. Paul, when he wrote to the Philippians in chapter two of his letter, gives them examples of Christ, of himself and of Timothy. But then he gives them another example of a man called Epaphroditus. I'm going to read Philippians 2 verses 25 to 30 and then chapter 4 verse 18 to you. 
Still, I think it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and co-worker, my fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for all of you and he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. He was indeed so ill that he nearly died, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, so that I would not have one sorrow after another. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, in order that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Welcome him in the Lord with all joy, and honour such people, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for those services that you could not give me. And then at the end of the letter he says, I have been paid in full and have more than enough. I am fully satisfied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. A fragrant offering, a, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. Epaphroditus is a picture of a risk taker. Theodore Roosevelt, the American president at the turn of the 20th century, said this, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again. But there is no effort without error and shortcomings. But who does actually strive to do the deed? who knows great enthusiasm, the great devotion, who spends himself on a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Wow! There's a life of somebody who wants to make a difference. Surely the most important question in our lives isn't, is it safe? It is, is it God? My 16-year-old son asked me that 10 years ago. I was dumbfounded. I was left speechless that this young man who was standing before me could challenge me so profoundly and so honestly. I can remember thinking to myself that it had been a long time since I had heard anyone saying something quite so insightful and quite so brave. I was also crushed because this was my son challenging me, his father, about a decision that he had made that I thought was wrong. God was using Matthew to challenge me about my life, my ministry, and most importantly, my role as a father and as a husband. The context probably would help you. It was early 2011 and the world was watching with sickening shock the events that were unfolding in Libya. Thousands of people were fleeing the country as the Gaddafi regime was collapsing and its cruel vendetta of bloodshed and revenge was spilling out against its opponents. Libya borders Tunisia, Egypt and Chad and those countries were being overwhelmed with people seeking to escape the last throes of Gaddafi's doomed dictatorship. Dictatorship. With his promise to exterminate those who stood against him in their ears, many Libyan citizens saw seeking asylum as the only viable option. What started as a trickle ended up as a flood. Thousands of people fled Libya into Tunisia on a daily basis, and by the 3rd of March 2011, 200,000 people had run either to Tunisia or to Egypt. On the Tunisian border, the Raj Ajdir refugee camp sprouted up. It had a capacity for 10,000 people, but it was quickly overwhelmed. 
and the World Health Organization warned of health epidemics, violence, and a constant state of panic and confusion. It was a dire situation. The church I led at the time received um, a message from a charity that was working in the refugee camp that said they just needed people to help. And one of my colleagues decided that he would put a team together with my permission and we worked together on what that would look like. I've always been proud, you know, that our church managed to do that so quickly and so efficiently. Over the course of three weeks, the teams went and served 10,000 people a day. They were inspirational. They were selfless. They were a community to be proud of. Sending them changed our church. I remain proud of that. They were made up of men and women from various backgrounds who were tr- struggling with challenges in their own lives. One lady that went had a husband who was dying and they talked about it and they agreed that she should go. It was a risk, but they both felt it was right. What an inspiration. So far, so good. But then my 16-year-old wanted to go. And everything that I believed about this trip was forced upon me and I wouldn't let him. I said no, but Matthew was right to challenge me. He was only 16, he was our eldest son and our reservations were real and genuine but there was a community of people around him and Matthew was right to say that God was speaking to him. He sat down with us, he talked to us about the reasons for going, he told us that he'd prayed about it, that he'd come to a sense that God wanted him to do this thing, that God wanted him to go to this place. We asked him why, he pointed out he'd carried a sense of a call to serve people like this ever since a mission trip to Uganda in 2010. It's what he wanted to do. I liked the idea of him being a pastor or a doctor or a social worker or a development worker. But when he was 25 or 26, not when he was 16, I tried to talk him out of it, but I couldn't. And he dropped the bombshell to me and to Debbie, my wife. He told us that we had taught him that God's will was the most important thing in his life and to say yes to it was the most important response. Here he was with scriptures and confirmations and a strong sense of God's purpose and he was asking me to release him to do something. But because we thought it was too dangerous, we were saying no. And he said to me, Dad, surely the most important question isn't, is it safe? It's, is it God? I will live with that conversation for the rest of my life and I'll actually be profoundly grateful for it. Paul Tillich once said this, he who risks and fails can be forgiven, but he who risks, he who never risks and never fails is a failure in his old being. It's a dangerous thing to refuse to take a risk. When Paul wrote his letter to the Philippians, he was in jail. We're not quite sure whether it was Caesarea or Rome, probably Rome, but the location isn't of primary importance I think it was probably Rome. What's important is that he wrote it when he was in jail. Paul's visit to Philippi is recorded in Acts 16. And Philippi was in effect the place where the first European convert to Christianity, a woman called Lydia, who was a wealthy fabric merchant, found her way to faith. It was in Philippi that Paul delivered a young woman of a demonic spirit. And that action led to Paul's arrest and to the arrest of his companion Silas. Philippi was the site of the story of the famous jailer who was brought to faith when Paul and Silas refused to leave a prison cell where God had miraculously opened the door. The city was also the scene of a riot because of Paul's preaching and teaching. Described by some as an epistle of joy and by others as one of hope, 
The letter to the Philippians has really valuable lessons for us today. Serving and supporting one another, standing together, living in God's purposes, putting Christ first, straining forward to what lies ahead of us, being shaped by the future rather than shaped by the past. It tells us to avoid backbiting and gossip. It helps us understand what it looks like to be a community on the move, willing to follow God. But there's a character in it called Epaphroditus, who is often overlooked. And he teaches us a huge amount about risk. He was sent to Paul as an envoy by the believers in Philippi. You can read more about it in Ephesians, in Philippians 2, 25-30 and 418, the verses I read at the beginning of this chap of this podcast. And Epaphroditus' job was to bring Paul a monetary gift from the church. Presumably they'd set it aside, they'd either volunteered it or they had uh, saved it or something, and they wanted to help him. Paul, if he was in prison in Rome or Caesarea, would not have had any financial support. He would have had to pay for his own food, his own water, and if he didn't have any money, he would have died. So the Philippian church presumably got money together for food, for clothing, and they needed to get it to him, so they sent Epaphroditus. But when you read his story more carefully, you discover that Epaphroditus stays with Paul for a considerable time, and he acts as a support for him. And while he's there, he falls ill with Paul. And as a result, he remains with him until he's well enough to come back to Philippi. Even then, it looks like Epaphroditus is anxious, is not wanting to be perceived as a failure by the people in Philippi that sent him. So when Paul writes his letter back to the Philippians, he's keen to act as an advocate for Epaphroditus. And there are deep lessons to learn from what he says about Epaphroditus and the choices that Epaphroditus must have made. Let me highlight just three points about this man and then explore them fully over the next few podcasts with you. His name, his reputation and his legacy. What about his name? That's what I want to focus on for the next seven or eight minutes in this podcast and the remaining time that we have. It comes from the Greek word Epaphrodite, which is obviously the name of a goddess. So it tells us he was almost certainly of Greek origin and that he was a Gentile. The name means belonging to Epaphrodite and often carried the meaning of handsome or good looking as well. There's more to it than that though. Epaphrodite was the goddess of love and beauty but she was also the goddess of gamblers. Epaphroditus therefore has a name associated with risk. It is legitimate to say that he could have been nicknamed the gambler or the risk taker. In most cultures names are deeply important. Epaphroditus' name had huge significance for the shaping of his character and how people perceived him. As a convert to Christianity from a Gentile and a Greek background, he carried with him a sense of his own personality and his own history. He was also a follower of Christ in Philippi. And Philippi lay in an area where worship of gods and goddesses such as Epaphrodite and Artemis and Hephaestus and others was very strong. The account of the beginning of the church in Philippi, Acts 16 tells us of a city full of competing ideas and cultures and spiritualities. Probably the impact of Paul's visit to the city was such that it resulted in huge change evidenced by the fact that there was a riot. It's presumably in that context that Epaphroditus comes to faith. He's respected and he's loved by the Christian community of Philippi, otherwise they wouldn't have sent him with the money for the imprisoned Paul and the gift that they had gathered. 
It's easy to become lost in our culture and the context of our day if we aren't careful. That happens either because the cultures of our church traditions are more important than they should be, or because the culture of wider society is more important than it should be. It seems to me that there are three options when it comes to faith in Christ and becoming part of his church. Two of those options involve compliance and one involves risk. And we need to be careful not to be swallowed up by either our church culture or our society's culture by letting them decide who we are. Instead, like Epaphroditus, we have to take a risk. We need to recognise that like him, we have a name that ties us to three different communities. The community that we're from, the community of our church to which we now belong, and the community of the people of God that we are called to in Christ. The risk is that we mustn't let anything be more important to us than the identity and the purpose that God has for us. And that is not easy. We can be swallowed up by the culture of our churches. We can develop a mentality that runs away from the culture of our lives if we're not careful. We're afraid of the world. We're afraid that we'll be contaminated by it. So we isolate ourselves in fear and suspicion and we lock ourselves away from our culture. And the result is that both our lives and our churches become irrelevant footnotes to the society that we're part of. We see it all around us in church buildings that seem to be museums or mausoleums or even carpet factories or nightclubs or simply empty shallow teeth sticking out of the ground, remembering a corpse that once was alive and breathing with the hope and purposes of God but is now a dead community. There are small chapels and churches where the idea of change is so resisted that you feel as if you are stepping into a time warp when you enter them. Churches that have become mosques or nightclubs or carpet houses are one things. But sometimes churches can stay called churches and be doing nothing. I'm talking about church communities that have locked themselves away from their wider community. They've invested too much of their identity in their tradition and in their building. And they're dying. They've been swallowed not by the culture of society but by the culture of tradition and by fear. Their view of faith leads them to a warped sense of detachment where everything new is suspicious. Attempt to change anything is resisted because it undermines the past. Situations like that mean that we become hostages of our history rather than people who are ready to leave a legacy. Pressure to conform within the Christian community becomes so great that we become enslaved to the glories of what we once were self-appointed of guardians of the past rather than shapers of the future. We're formed by what we were instead of who we are. Take a few moments to think about your own understanding of holiness and how it's been changed. Do you think holiness is staying away from the world and running away from it or do you think holiness is because Christ is present in your life? I wonder sometimes if we allow the culture of our churches to shape us so much that we lose our Christian identity and we end up being nothing more than a pale shadow of what God has called us to be. But then there's the other danger, being swallowed by the culture of our society. We allow ourselves just to become an extension of our communities, whether that's an extension of social services, an extension of government or an extension of their ethics and their morals. We don't say anything different from the world around us. I have too many friends who, in a quest for relevance, have taken upon themselves some kind of messiah complex. They have defined salvation as becoming a better version of yourself. 
they fail to see that the heart of Christianity is a new creation. We're not called to be like culture. We're called to challenge culture. We're called to live in the culture of the kingdom, to live a different kind of life, the life that God has for it. And then there's the third option, the challenge of living in the new identity of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, like Epaphroditus, to recognise that who we are is God's child and what we are called to do is live out of what God has made us to be so that his purposes can be fulfilled. For Epaphroditus, that involved choices about what he did with his life, where he went, and ultimately what was of central value to him. And the same is true of us. You and I can decide what we do with our name and we can let our name decide for us. Or we can decide to be shaped by our Christian identity first. Let me explain. I must not let my former identity control me. My full name is Malcolm James Duncan and it means the dark haired, that's what Duncan means, friend, that's what James means, and servant of column, which is what Malcolm means. Behind that story lies a, behind that name lies a story that I might tell one day, but not today. And it's not a good one. It's enough to say that when I became a Christian, my perspective of life changed completely. I, I now carry a new and much more important name, a new identity. I'm a Christian. My destiny and my identity are more powerfully shaped by what God has made me than what I once was. Like you, if you're a Christian, like Epaphroditus, I have a new future that I did not have before I came to Christ. Yet the fact remains I am still Malcolm James Duncan, so I now carry the history of all that I am alongside the hope and the purpose of all that I'm called to be. I am neither controlled nor dominated by my past, but I am shaped by it. And my responsibility is to ensure that who I am is not controlled by who I was. Secondly, I mustn't let my church identity control me. My journey into ministry is wonderfully diverse and colourful. I was converted in a large Pentecostal church in Northern Ireland. I helped plant a church in Scotland. I studied theology in a mainstream university, then a denominational Bible college. I hold ordination credentials in one denomination. I've pastored in others. I've led churches from the Anglican community, the Pentecostal community, the Baptist community, the Reformed Methodist traditions. I was one of the, lar- the leaders of the largest evangelical movement in the UK and served as a global leader of a Christian movement for social change for five years. One of my friends described me once as a Catholic at the altar, a charismatic in worship and an evangelical in the pulpit. I'm not sure I agree with all of those definitions, by the way, but they do make me laugh. And yet, none of those traditions are more important than me being a Christian, a little Christ. That's what the word means, an anointed one. Recognising that my fundamental identity releases me from the perilous snares of being a Pentecostal first, or a Baptist first, or a pastor first, or a theologian first, or an author first, is important. I have to be first a follower of Jesus. That's the name that matters most. And what others need me to see be is what Christ has called me to be. Epaphroditus carried the reality of all that he had been into the reality of all that God was making him. We see that in the choices that he made and the way that he lived, which we'll examine. He didn't run away from his identity. Instead, he allowed it to be swallowed up by a new identity. We must do the same. Learning to accept the people of our history that we are helps us to become the person that God has called us to be now. We don't run away from our past. 
We step into our new identity with a confidence that God is at work. Now we are the children of God, 1 John 3, 1 says. And we've been given a new life in Christ, says Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3. What we are now is far more powerful than what we used to be, according to Ephesians chapter 2. We're seated at the right hand of God. Let that identity shape you. Let it give you a sense of possibility and purpose because you can now, according to 2 Corinthians 5, look at the world through new eyes. Imagine allowing your new identity as a Christian to be so paramount that it shapes everything else. I think there's a possibility that God could do something in us if we could only remember who we are in Christ. Epaphroditus' identity was shaped by his identity in Jesus. This man was given a name by his parents who didn't know Christ. He was drawn into a relationship with God and his destiny was now shaped by who he was in Christ. We'll explore in the next podcast that his whole life became reorientated around the purposes of God. He was willing to step away from everything in order to serve God's purposes and plans. There's no risk of being abandoned by God when you become a risk taker. There's no risk that God will walk away. There's no risk that you will be let down. There's no risk that you will be lost by God. There's no risk that um, God will abandon you. There's no risk being drawn into the family of God that God will then throw you out of it again. The risk is death, disaster, persecution, rejection by our culture. But God holds us. I know a man who pastors in Siberia. In that context, for every Christian man, there's almost 10 Christian women. So when a young woman becomes a Christian, that pastor goes to see her. And before he, she is baptised, he confronts her with a powerful and provocative question. He says, I want you to understand that you run the risk of never marrying and never having children. If you're willing to take that risk, then please go ahead and get baptised. If you're not, please reconsider your request for baptism. Because I cannot guarantee you what the Bible does not guarantee you. So here's the challenge as you think about your name. In the next episode of this podcast series, we will take a look at the risks that Epaphroditus took as he risked his reputation. Because he was so gripped by his new identity. Many young women in Siberia say yes to my friend because they are captured by their new identity. They'll let nothing get in the way of living for Jesus. They'll, they're willing to lay it all down on the line. Their new name is more important than their old identity. And it's more important than their deepest yearnings and longings. What about you and me? Are we living in an old identity? Is our denominational affiliation more important to us than our identity in Christ? Is maintaining the customs of the traditions that we're part of, holding up the teaching or the instruction or the way things are done around here, is that more important than being a Christian? Because when Christian, when being Christian becomes the most important thing in our lives, everything is subsumed by it and the change and the possibility is immense. But the freedom that it brings is breathtaking. You feel as if you've put your head out of ice water and you're back in the open air and can breathe again. So whoever you are, wherever you are, let the name that matters most to you be the name Christian. Let the identity that sits above everything else be this, 
You are a child of God and in that identity you find your freedom.